All your base are belong to us. Hello, and welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy. I'm a writer. And after months of covering very horny media, I am relieved to be covering abstinence propaganda. I'm Mary. I'm a a marketer. And, um, you know, if we take in consideration the abstinence propaganda, how spicy is this? (laughs) Negative five. (laughs) But if it's all abstinence... You know, if we're if we're if we're in a vacuum of abstinence, this is pretty spicy because they're pretty oh, horny. God, I hate it. I won't let you get away without talking about spice. I, yeah, I God, I can't express how little I liked the experience of reading this this book. Um, so today we're talking about New Moon, the second Twilight book, uh, and yeah, that's that's what we're here for. Uh, things we will not be focusing on in this episode. So don't expect this conversation because we talked about it last time. Uh, Whether Stephanie Meyer is to blame for all of society's ills. I think the consensus we reached last episode is that while these books are certainly flawed and promote some ideas that we are not super fond of, Stephanie Meyer is not to blame for all of society's ills. Can we agree on that point? I suppose. Okay. Penny may have a different opinion. That's true. She has a lot of opinions. I don't think that these books should be banned. I think that is, you know, part of a, a healthy reading diet. There is nothing wrong with these books or enjoying them. Uh, I don't judge anybody who does like them, despite the fact that I am going to be extremely critical throughout this episode. I truly, I just don't care what other people are reading. I just don't. I I don't have it in me to care. Um, I also want to give a disclaimer. At this point, uh, I think it's necessary to talk about Stephanie Meyer's religion. Uh, Stephanie Meyer is Mormon. She has made no secret of that. Um, she also claims that it didn't impact the events of the book whatsoever. I think even if it, even if she didn't intend to include, you know, elements of her faith in the book, it's going to appear regardless. You cannot escape your own, you know, cultural biases, the things that matter to you. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but there are elements of this book that I think require us to talk about Mormonism. Um, neither Mary nor I are Mormon. Um, nor do we claim to be experts in Mormonism. Um, I'm putting in my best effort to talk about the unique beliefs of the Church of Latter-day Saints accurately and respectfully, even as we're critical of how those beliefs intersect with ideas like racism and misogyny, because that's where you're really going to see them. Um, to be abundantly clear, this what I'm saying here and what we're going to say in this episode is not individually about hating on Mormonism as a specific religion. It is about discussing how historical and current beliefs in Mormonism intersect with our culture's inherent misogyny, racism, and other forms of prejudice. In general, you could say that about any religion in us. Yeah, that's, that's really how I feel. I just, um, I don't want this to seem as if this is a, uh, an episode where we're just going to talk shit on Mormonism the whole time. It is not that, um, it may feel like that at times, but the reason the reason that we've chosen to take this angle is not because we hate Mormonism, but because of the way that Mormonism intersects with the existing prejudices in our culture. That's the best way I can think to phrase it. Um, so just be prepared for that. I want to give a content warning for this episode um, because the events of New Moon are such that we really can't not talk about suicide and suicidal ideation. We are going to be sticking, you know, to the events of the book. We're not going to be getting really graphic or anything. But if that is an er an issue that is sensitive to you, um, 
you know, feel free to skip this one. It's I think it's a really good conversation, but also it's not worth, you know, experiencing pain over. So just be warned ahead of time. In line with the events of the book, we are going to be talking about suicide and suicidal ideation. Uh, so with that out of the way, are you ready to talk about death worship? When am I not? <laughs> All day, every day. Let's talk about death worship. You get death worship. You get death worship. <laughs> So something we talked about quite a bit in the episodes we've done so far on his dark materials uh, is, you know, one of Philip Pullman, who's the author of his dark materials, one of his big oppositions to organized religion, specifically Christianity, is that the promise of a perfect afterlife can encourage you to not appreciate this life, uh, which then leads to the exploitation of the natural world as well as, as well as people. Right. Because if you don't give a shit about your life and you don't give a shit about the life of the planet on which you live, there is no reason not to exploit it because the whatever's coming after is the real reward. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay, cool. Um, that's one of those things that like, when I was reading his dark materials as a kid, I, I was like, I, I can feel something here, but I can't, <laughs> I can't grasp it. And as an adult, I get it. And yeah. I'm just like, I don't know if, if it's as clear. Um, so uh, he talks a lot about this idea in this in in his lecture, uh, an essay, The Republic of Heaven, which I read in Demon Voices, which is a book of like lectures and essays by Pullman where he talks about writing. Um, and in The Republic of Heaven, he seeks to establish an alternative to the kingdom of heaven, uh, the kingdom of heaven being our current like the current Christian idea of heaven ruled over by a monarch, in this case, God, the Republic of Heaven being more akin to like a democracy or something like that it's it's kind of a it's kind of an abstract complicated idea you don't really need to get the idea of the republic in this sense the only thing to know is that it i can't remember if in the quote he uses the word republican he's not referring to like american republican conservative ideology he's talking about a, a denizen of the republic of heaven um this essay was, I realize this feels like, why the fuck are you talking about this? This has nothing to do with Twilight. We'll get there. Um, he wrote this uh, sort of, and he proposed this idea of the kingdom of heaven, somewhat inspired by C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, um, which I am going to have to spoil a bit. And also the book of Revelations. Sorry for the spoilers. To him, the same thing. Yeah, truly. So Pullman takes issue with the revelation at the end of the Narnia books, the last book being The Last Battle, um, that the real world that we all inhabit has been a pale shadow of heaven. Everything we do and see and feel here in our world is an imitation of the true experience that you find after death. So in the at the end of this uh, this book, Lewis actually invokes Plato using the allegory in ca of the cave. Um, hold on, I'll find the passage really quick because I think it's I think it's probably better to have an illustration here. So towards the end, this is a quote from the essay, The Republic of Heaven. Uh, Pullman writes, C.S. Lewis at the end of the last book in the Narnia series has his character, the wise old professor, explaining our world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. In fact, the two things are, quote, as different as a real thing is from a shadow or as waking life is from a dream, unquote. And then he goes on to add under his breath, quote, it's all in Plato, all in Plato. Bless me. What do they teach them in these schools? Unquote. <laughs> so he's he's invoking Plato's allegory of the cave, which um, we talked about. We love. We've talked about extensively in our The Last Unicorn episode, um, basically the idea that everything that we see and interact with in our world is not the real version. We are essentially looking at shadows on a cave wall. Um, so he, again, Lewis invokes Plato and the allegory of the cave to explain this idea that the world that we're living in is, uh, is 
of a fictionalized or like unimportant version of the true life, which we will experience in the afterlife. Um, and Pullman finds this idea repugnant. Like he fucking hates it. Um, and he, he writes the notion that the world we know with our senses is a crude and imperfect copy of something much better somewhere, somewhere else is one of the most striking and powerful inventions of the human mind. It's also one of the most perverse and pernicious. It's pernicious because it encourages us to disbelieve the evidence of our senses and allows us to suspect everything of being false. It leads to a state of mind that's hostile to experience. It encourages us to see a toad lurking beneath every flower and if we can't see one it's because the toads now are extra cunning and have learned to become invisible it's a state of mind that leads to a hatred of the physical world so in this essay pullman suggests that religion previously filled um a sort of void so after you know the whole nietzschean idea of god is dead um religion you know god god is dead but also religion is now having to fill the void of meaning for us like we have to find a way to construct meaning because we have concluded that there isn't inherent meaning. Um, so now, you know, now we have to follow a faith to give us some, some purpose for the world's existence. Right. And it becomes a sort of proving ground. So this, I always think one of the things I like, uh, I took a real, took a lot of religion classes because I love learning about religion. But one of the things that I remember the most from and this maybe have nothing to do with this but this just reminded me of it the most like the one thing that a teacher taught me was that statistically when you take into account people who truly believe religion and like 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 you're saying like to fill a void in which they truly believe in there are more religious people now than there were back when Mm -hmm. a bunch of people were going to church and i think that makes sense with this because you have to be you're almost like put in a situation where you have to be devout because that's that feeling is 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 what's filling that void not just going to church i think yeah so this is getting into some some complex like philosophy that is not part of my outline so <laughs> um bear with me as i stumble my way through this but the the idea that god is dead comes if i remember correctly out of the age of enlightenment when we were you know coming to understand the natural functions of the world and when we could answer questions about why do seasons happen and the answer was not god did it we now had a void to fill if god does not exist or if god does not exist in the way that we always thought he existed then why does anything matter and religion can fill that void by saying well actually the physical world that you inhabit is a proving ground is your test for whatever is going to come later and in that way you can replace or you can still you can still have meaning to all of your actions now the the philosophical like the secular philosophical counterpoint to that is that meaning is created anything you do has meaning because you imbue it with meaning it doesn't have an inherent purpose whereas religion would suggest that it does have an inherent purpose so now that religion is like less popular in a sense right we should replace that lack of meaning this is what pullman is arguing now you know now that we have you know proven that like evolution happens and like not everything is is the the you know at the puppet strings of one great puppet master um now that now that that's generally accepted to be true we should replace that lack of meaning as in like we're no longer it's not god did it is not a sufficient explanation for Mm -hmm. a lot of people now 
Um, instead of relying on the explanation of God did it, we should replace that lack of inherent meaning with an appreciation for the world that we live in and for our fellow, fellow humans. Otherwise, to, do, to not do that is to seek death, essentially. Uh, we are chasing the like, quote unquote real world as promised by Lewis or as promised by God in our afterlife rather than seeing that the world around us is beautiful and flawed and worthy of protecting. Like hoping the redemption comes tomorrow. Exactly. Like that's that's how you end up like and I'm sorry to tinfoil hat here a bit, but like there are aspects of like conservative and evangelical ideology that are pushing for apocalyptic oh, absolutely, events. Absolutely. And and that's I think where this comes from is like, yeah, life is fucking hard, right? Like life is difficult. We're surrounded by difficulty and strife and struggle. And that that can be demoralizing. So people who believe in this afterlife want to push us as fast towards that like beautiful eternity as possible. That's a, the end of time. That's a death drive. Like that's not um that's not great. Like that, that is not living <laughs> to me. Um, so does all of that make sense? That, that idea yeah. of the, the reward is coming later. That's why we suffer now. Yes. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. And I see, I, well, I have C because I've already read it, but I see how this goes. <laughs> okay. So that is, that, that is a lot that we just went through that seemingly has nothing to do with twilight. Right. But in twilight, you have two characters seeking death. Edward in, in new moon specifically, you have Edward literally seeking death in that he's looking into ways to die. Like he, Edward is literally seeking death. Um, in the beginning, he's talking about how, you know, it's so easy for humans to die. And it's so hard for vampires to die. Um, and Bella is also sometimes literally seeking death um but also figuratively seeking death in that she is seeking undeath right she is seeking for edward to turn her into a vampire um both of them looking for a promised reward and an escape from the struggles of you know real world living i don't know what she thinks like i guess because she just wants to be with him i'll get i'll get there because i think it, i think it's like multi-layered um both characters are also literally chasing heaven or at least not chasing hell, right? Especially in, or not chasing hell, but they're, they're trying to avoid hell. Um, especially in Edward's case, because everything he does is to avoid damning himself or, or Bella. And Bella is seeking this perfect eternal life where everything is better in asking Edward to turn her. And like, on the surface, this doesn't seem especially pernicious as Pullman refers to it, because we know that we're working with fantasy here, right? Like becoming a vampire is not the same as heaven. Like, you know, those, it's not like one to one, right? It's not always literally about death, but it is actually also about death. Yeah. Um, I won't get in my, into the later books too much, um, but the perfect heaven that Bella seeks is one that will forever separate her from some of the things that she loves. She is happier to seek a future divorced from the things that she loves, like the earthly things that she loves because of this promised, beautiful, eternal life. She, like she's willing to throw it away for that. Bella does not care about those. Things. I mean, she cares to a degree, right? But she's willing to give them up because the perfection that awaits her is more important. She does not care about the life she is currently living because she wholeheartedly believes that something better will come after. She'll be stone hard literally stone boobs it's just god <laughs> rocks for boobs so weird uh as pullman talks about throughout this essay this is not uncommon with religion the idea that the life we're living now is is 
temporary and unimportant and the real reward comes after. So while Twilight is, you know, a young adult romance and not a religious text, we have to acknowledge that religion plays a not insignificant role in this series, not only because of Edward's fear of damnation and Bella's desire for the perfect afterlife, but because of Myers's religious views, right? Um, this is going to come up a lot throughout this episode, so expect us to refer back to Myers's religion frequently. Um, another key component of Pullman's lecture is the idea of youth, because there's this sort of idolization of youth in the Chronicles of Narnia, which frequently has young children ending up in a strange new world and interacting with a Christ figure, Aslan, who's a lion. Um, I love the Chronicles of Narnia, full disclosure. Like, They are very fantastical. And there's, fun. Yeah, like they were a huge part of my upbringing. And then when I reached the last battle and felt horribly betrayed, um, the his dark materials came in and <laughs> carried me along mm-hmm. um so at the end of the series again i'm gonna spoil <laughs> it's like a like 80 year old series at this point uh at the end of the series three of the four pevency children uh i think maybe it's pevency i don't know i grew up reading it so i don't know how to say it um three of the children lucy peter and edmund who if you've read or seen the chron- uh the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's three of the main children there. They all die in a railway accident and they end up in heaven. Uh, the fourth child, Susan, does not. We are not here to discuss Narnia, so I won't get too into the old argument of Susan. That's a Someday we'll do the Chronicles of Narnia and then we can talk about Susan. But We'll have a, host, a whole section. We'll have a whole section about Susan. Um, but suffice to say that Susan is not dead because she was not with her family and some of the characters, not necessarily her family members, I can't remember who does what, but some of the characters make disparaging remarks about Susan now being interested only in things like lipstick and stockings and she acts as though their journeys in Narnia were children's games. Um, I mean, they were kind of children. Children were there. Children were there. But she acts as if they didn't really happen. Like, she's like, oh, funny that you still believe in those games we played as a a child, even though she repeatedly traveled to Narnia. So she's denying that these events ever happened. So I'm trying very hard now to not tread on our eventual episode on the Amber Spyglass. Um, But this idea of youth and knowledge and pleasure in the world are very, very important to Pullman. Um, So he naturally takes issue with this treatment of Susan, right? Especially because he believes it reveals a hypocrisy in Lewis's logic. Did he hate read this series? I think like me, (laughs) he may have read it and been like, oh, what a wonderful fantasy. And then you get to the end and you're like, hey, what the fuck? Hey, what? Excuse me? Excuse like okay, the the uh crucifixion in in the last or in the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is pretty clear if you are familiar with the crucifixion story, which I was not as a child. So that one that one kind of flew over my head. Instead it was just a really beautiful story about sacrifice. Um but like the last battle is unmistakable. So uh, so yeah, anyway, Pullman reveals, uh, Pullman believes that the treatment of Susan reveals a hypocrisy in Lewis's logic. Uh, at one point, Lewis actually wrote, surely arrested development consists not in refusing to lose old things, but in failing to add new things. I now like Hawk, which I am sure I should not have liked as a child, but I still like lemon squash. Call this growth or development because I, I call this growth or development because I have been enriched where I formerly had only one pleasure. I now have two. 
So basically what he's saying there is that as a kid, I wouldn't have liked this thing that I now like. Now I get to have two pleasures, whereas yeah. before I only would have had one. So many people could learn from that. Yes. Um, but this idea seems at odds, right, with Lewis's treatment of Susan, where things, you know, earthly pleasures of lipstick and stockings, which are symbol, you know, symbols of adulthood and of burgeoning sexuality, right, seem to suggest that Susan is now ignorant of the more important spiritual issues, essentially arguing that lipstick and stockings have replaced her uh, her thinking about religion. The feminine always gets you. It's true. Um, in fact, there is nothing really that prevents us from losing the excitement and thrill for the world that children have as we become adults. Um, and in fact, to pretend otherwise, as Pullman would put it, is a very kingdom of heaven thing to do, right? Of course, when you're a child, it's easier to look at the world and be like, wow, a rock because you've never seen a rock like that before, right? It's it's your first time interacting. You know, the first time you see a rock, you're like, whoa. That's, this is millennials a couple years ago. Look, a crystal. <laughs> like, you've never seen something like that before. So it's very exciting. As you get older, you've seen rocks before. You see a rock, you're like, yeah, I've seen one of those. It's not exciting anymore. But there's nothing really that prevents us from tapping back into the sense of childlike wonder and engagement with the world, right? Where we once had one pleasure, seeing a rock, we now have two. We can appreciate the difference between rocks. So I follow this girl on Instagram. She's a Disney blogger. And she went, I think they went to like Colorado or something. And she spent a whole day um, like on showing all the rocks she's like yes. she's like she's like i know these are just rocks guys but look how beautiful this it's is. true like legitimately i think that's an important skill as adults that we need to cultivate that's she's like good at that that's like what mindfulness practice is is the idea of sitting in the moment and looking and appreciating and engaging with with something so she's a really good she cries a lot yeah like she'll she'll go somewhere and she'll see something she cries a lot but it's because she does that because mm -hmm. she's fully taking it in and i think that's why i like her because she genuinely has she can genuinely go and look at a rock and cry. <laughs> and just be amazed at the existence of a rock. Yeah, she just truly appreciates it. Yes. And then her and her boyfriend dress up as every single Twilight character for Halloween. Oh my god. Did I show you that? No. I'll show you. Um, so the idea of the idea that we lose our capacity to appreciate the world as adults, again, is something that I think Pullman would would think is a very like quote unquote kingdom of heaven thing to do, right? If we can agree that religion is often about creating a meaning for living in this world, we can see how the worship of both eternal youth, where it's much easier to tap into that sense of wonder about the world because so much of it is still new and you don't have as many responsibilities <laughs> as, you, when, as when you're an adult. Uh, so we can see how that and then the worship of death as a promise for a return to wonder and beauty and peace really rankle Pullman, right? But this isn't about Pullman or Narnia, right? This is about Twilight. Apparently. But surely you can see where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. The early struggles in New Moon are based a lot on Bella's fears of growing older and therefore growing out of and away from Edward, right? After the prologue, the book opens with her having a dream about turning elderly to coincide with her 18th birthday. Oh my God. That was, I literally thought, I'm like, is she talking? I thought she was talking to her little grandma and I'm, we didn't get that scene in the movie, did we? It's very brief, but oh, it is we there. did, we did, we did, we did. There's a, there's a Bizarre. lot, there's a lot going on in the movie at all times. Um, at least it has more going on than the first one. Yeah. So she is 18, and Edward is forever 17, even though he's over 100. Um, because of this, she can see herself growing out of and away from her dream life, where she and Edward are young together forever. 
Now, there's a couple of things happening here, right? On one level, this fear is exactly what it looks like. She doesn't want to get old. Sure. Okay. That's something a lot of people in our culture fear, right? Mm. But why do we have that fear? Like, why is that a fear? Because I don't want to die. Exactly. It's not really about getting old, right? It's about getting closer to death. It's about getting closer to death. So don't get me wrong. Like most other people in our culture, I would also like to keep living as long as comfortably possible, right? Like I'm not out here like, yeah, I'm ready to die at 33. I'm super not. Um, Especially because I personally don't believe in a clear reward or punishment after death, right? Yeah. Um, that probably doesn't help me. Yeah. To me, there is nothing waiting for me beyond. Um, but for many people, there is something waiting, right? There's heaven or some variation of it or the threat of hell for being a bad person, which includes ending your own life, which is a very useful threat. If your system of power is based on telling people to be compliant for reward down the line, if you, if you're like, Oh, everything will be better. All the toils of this life will be worth it in the next life, but don't kill yourself or you won't get to experience the pleasures. It's kind of like, Okay. Uh, In Edward's case, he believes that hell is probably what awaits him in the afterlife, right? If he ever gets to an afterlife, because he's a vampire and he's killed people, he's experienced lust, et cetera, et cetera. Um, He's also has he ever drank in blood? Yes, he killed he killed people before 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 Carlisle. Oh, maybe I'm thinking of he's never had sex. He has never had sex. That's right. That is, I was like, I feel like he's never done something. He has had he has had blood. Has not had sex. Um, he's also afraid of the consequences of turning Bella as he believes that doing so will tarnish her soul as he doesn't believe that vampires have souls, right? So Bella, on the other hand, wants to be turned so that she never has to age, making her eternally suited for Edward. Together, they would essentially be in heaven. They would be forever youthful. They would be powerful. They would be in an idealized, perfect, true version of the person they were as a flawed mortal, right? Stephanie Meyer really, like pushes this home with the whole conversation that we don't get in the movies of souls right and do vampires have souls and essentially do you go to heaven or hell like this is a long conversation stephanie meyer's like do they get it no let's write some more do they get it (laughs) no i think we need a little bit more and i think we're gonna see more of this in later books as well but in we get it we get a taste of it in new moon the idea that the vampire that you become is an amplified version of the human that you were, right? The powers that you had as a human become amplified in your undeath. This is true with something else. This is often true. A lot a lot of vampire fiction will have some version of this. I think Vampire Diaries is what I've been thinking of. Oh, really? No, it must not be. There, no, I think it is. Because I think, because what's his name? Good guy. Um, Stefan? He experiences empathy much stronger. Does he? Because he... Because he maybe that's why he's so moody and broody. Um, so so basically, what I'm getting at here is is the idea that this idea of becoming a vampire for Bella equates to heaven, right? She is looking for the reward after her literal death and rebirth to become the idealized perfect version of herself. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. So I know that the readings of physical and mental abuse get worse later in the series, but for right now, this line of of thinking strikes me as the most pernicious ideology in the book in terms of the relationships, right? Edward and Bella are not looking forward to a life where they can experience life together. They are looking for complete and utter stasis and perfection. I mean, the book tries to tell you that, that Edward is... For like a brief set, he's yeah, like, and like not even it's just like Bella, you should go to college. I don't want to. Mm. Okay. Hmm. 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 Um. Like when I think about my my life 
my future with my husband. Like, yeah, sure. It'd be great if we never had to struggle again, but that's uh, not realistic. And also like part of part of being in a relationship with somebody Mm -hmm. is experiencing struggle together and growing together. If you are a vampire, completely perfect in every way, you'll never grow again. You're stuck. You're stuck in that teenage brain. Right? Awful. Um, Bella, in particular, wastes what little life she has pining after what I think we can accurately call heaven, even if it's a heaven on earth rather than some sort of celestial heaven. Meadow. Yeah. Oh, God. It's just this is this is the thing that gets me more so than like Edward being creepy in her bedroom or whatever. Like this is what like I read this and I'm like, ugh. Um, and I personally find the idea of encouraging what is essentially death and youth worship in young readers far more troubling than the bad boy boyfriend stuff because there's far less pushback on it. Like mm-hmm. where in our culture are we like, no, you shouldn't desire to be young forever. There are untold pleasures awaiting you as an adult. Like there's beautiful things to see. There's wonderful things to learn. We don't really push back on that the way that, you know, I, I know that like, a lot of the behaviors that um, that Edward does that we frown upon as like bad boy, abusive boyfriend behavior, like a lot of those are normalized. But at the same time, I think there's far less pushback on the idea of, hey, actually, growing up can be great. You know, it doesn't have to suck. Maybe Edward's afraid when she grows up, she won't want him. Probably. Because they'll be a different age. Yeah. I personally, I'm really troubled by the idea of young readers worshiping the idea of a perfect, eternally youthful future where all of your troubles are solved and you settle into your ideal domestic roles. Like that troubles me so much more. And maybe because that's a personal hangup of mine, the the idea that entering into a relationship is what resolves all personal problems and that death is an escape from life's problems. I maybe think, that's a personal hangup of mine. But. I think as a teen, that sounds really good. Mm-hmm. But as you get older, I think that it. It's it's not that it doesn't sound good. It sounds so unrealistic right. that it's not feasible. I mean, even look at romance books. Mm-hmm. They're not all Twilight where everything goes 100% beautifully. They have the, the, the climax of something bad happens in the relationship and they have to get right. over it to get better. So I think, I think it's just, I don't know if it's damaging for kids, but man, it sure is setting them up for failure. I, yeah, I just really, the idea of the... The thing is, like, basically, this is a not-so-coded vision of the afterlife, right? Like, literally and figuratively. And encouraging uh, encouraging young readers to literally seek death is not great to me. Like, maybe this, again, maybe this is a personal hang-up of mine, but I did spend a lot of my youth hung up on the idea of dying. Like, I struggled with suicidal ideation a lot as a teenager. And, like... Let me tell you, I think this is it a, doesn't feel great. I think this is an incredibly good example of Stephanie Meyer believing that her religion is not coming into this. Mm-hmm. Clearly, so I don't think Stephanie Meyer is out here like, yes, children, kill yourself. No, 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 no. I, yeah, sorry. I don't want to argue that at all. I don't think that's but what's I going think on. This is a really good example of her biases come in because that's part of her. Like, just like part of my thinking is, you know, I don't know, feed my animals because my like be nice to dogs because that's just what you do right like this is this idea this afterlife idea and perfection and the fact that you can strive for perfection and ultimately if you're a good person you get it is something that is just inherently within her and she cannot unless someone's like a a good editor might point this out sure yeah yeah I'm sorry, I don't mean to imply that she's she is consciously <laughs> sitting down and saying, let's encourage all of the teenagers to kill themselves to die, go to heaven. That is, that is not... Stephanie that is not coming at you with a knife. It's just that I find this ideology really, really troubling. Would Stephanie Meyer choose to be a vampire, do you think? 
Um, She'd have to, right? Because she's in love with Edward. Maybe. I think it's hard to say simply because of her religion and how much pushback she got on, from members of her church on, yeah, on like writing about a vampire. Um, but they clearly didn't read it. Yeah. <laughs> or else they would have been like, nah. This nah. <laughs> Thanks, for write, vampire. Thanks for writing this propaganda. Um, so... Uh, let's let's return to that idea of the relationship between Edward, Edward and Bella as toxic, which we discussed in our last episode, right? Um, we're going to put a pin in physical and emotional abuse until the next couple of episodes, because that's where those things really ramp up. I really thought it was this book, um, but I was mostly mistaken. Um, because she's with Jacob. From exactly. Uh, one thing I do want to reiterate is that the appeal of the bad boy, which Edward barely is. Oh my God. This is something, this is something. Okay. So, I just have to say this. I say thought, it. Lay it on me. I was like, I'm going to come back to these books and I think I'm going to like it more because as I got older, I fully appreciated my love for the villain. And I know Edward's not a villain, but he's definitely supposed to be that bad. I mean, he's supposed to be dangerous. I mean, yeah, he's supposed to be dangerous. And look at look at him in the movies in that leather jacket and sunglasses. That just screams like you're going to cheat on me. <laughs> I love it. Um, and I got there and I got the good boyfriend. Yeah. I'm not here for the good boyfriend. He's just clingy. <laughs> he's he's like ultimate good boyfriend. Because yeah. you can bite me yeah. and turn me into a vampire. This boy loves abstinence so much. He loves it. He I was just kind of disappointed. I, like, I thought there was more danger. Take, take out the engine. Just like there, he is just barely the bad boy. Oh, if so nothing good. else, he like he's really just clingy. <laughs> he's just really obsessed with I her. I can see why. Fifty Shades of Grey was written as a fan fiction. Yeah. You're just like, oh, we're almost there. Yeah. They, the, she's like, this is what I wanted. Um, so I do want to reiterate that the appeal of the bad boy and and like hyper-masculine men is not itself anti-feminist. Uh, we don't always understand where our desires come from. Um and they may be at odds with how we behave or what we want in real life, right? I can attest to this because as much as I love a guy who picks a fight he can't win in fiction, I absolutely under no circumstances want anybody oh, in my yeah. real life like that. No, 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 no. I want, I want a like just normal ass, normal ass relationship. Same thing with like smoking. Yeah, I love a guy. Love looking at a guy smoke. I mean, I'm looking at I'm looking at Mrs. Constantine picture. And I was like, could just get a cigarette. Case, case in point, my attraction yeah. to John. Con- Would I want to date a man like that in real life? Absolutely fucking not. No, no, no. Get no. away from me. Yeah, that's weird. Get away. But in in fiction, yeah. Here's my call me. Card. Take my money. <laughs> um, you know. So, so our desires in real life are not necessarily aligned with our desires in fiction is what I'm getting at. And your desires for things that you see in fiction are not reflective of like, you being like a bad feminist or whatever. But there are some things appealing about the bad boy, including the very tame version that Edward represents. One of the most compelling to me is that the sensitive, like, quote unquote, vegetarian vampire represents a sort of struggle against tox- toxic masculinity, right? Basically, the restraint this kind of vampire demonstrates is similar to men who are masculine, you know, strong, powerful, stoic, etc., but without the traits of toxic masculinity so aggression emotional immaturity misogyny etc this is discussed in my vampire my vampire boyfriend uh post-feminism perfect masculinity which is by ananya mukajia um and here is a quote from that essay which reads vampire boyfriends on the other hand offer us known territory and the reliability of men with vast amounts of experience to hone their principles and actions they are immensely romantic laying out decadent picnics they sometimes cannot eat and remembering even minor anniversaries they are wealthy and influential alpha men in earning the respect of other men as the 
as well as the desire of other women, which, however, never interests them. And they are also benevolently paternal, whether this is Edward rocking Bella in his lap, Alexander helping Raven with her homework, or Mick first meeting Beth when he rescues her as a young girl, though never lecherous. Um, so this, there's this appeal here, right, of men that are men, certainly, uh, but that always put your needs first because they don't really have those needs, right? So, I like that. Yeah. Uh, we can see this for certain in Edward, right? Who Cook cares for me. Clean for me. <laughs> I'm fine. Who We can see this for certain in Edward, who cares so deeply about Bella's soul that he denies himself all kinds of pleasures, right? Blood, sex, kissing, even literally just her presence uh, so to save her soul. Kissing? Come on. It's because It's because of the blood. He can't bear the scent. It's it's like overwhelming for him. Um, he, he sure isn't very res- like his restraint isn't as good as they try to say it is. Really, I feel the opposite. Well, if he can't kiss her, I'm never. I never feel like Bella's ever in danger, and I find that so boring. <laughs> he, I just think he's just bad at being a vampire. He worships her, right? Like he would never do anything that would hurt her, and that is why I find their relationship ultimately very boring. I see. I, I agree. I would agree with that. But I think a lot of that worship, like I truly question if they're in love because I feel like for each of them, part of that worship of each other is a worship of themselves and what who they want to be. I think I think that if if that were the case, these books would be more interesting to me. But to Stephanie Meyer writing them, there is no doubt that they are truly in love. But I would say so. Yeah, I, w- I would agree. They're probably in love. But I f- still feel like Stephanie Meyer gets off on on making Edward this selfless person who worships, oh, yeah. who worships Bella. And to me, that just ends up feeling like Edward. What it comes across as me when I read it is Edward f- gets off on him worshiping, <laughs> worshiping I wish I, f- I wish I felt that way because that would be interesting to me. But I just, the worship just feels so shallow. So it really feels like the guy who's like, I'm a feminist. Yeah. I really think it's just that the characters are shallow. Maybe. It's just nothing. This is nothing there. Um, It just felt a lot. And I said this later. Like, it just feels a lot of like, Edward feels like, all bark, no bite. Yeah, <laughs> literally. Um, as Mukherjee outlines in this essay, there's also sort of a paternalism to these relationships, right? Something that Bella is actually missing in her life. She didn't have to be. Bella takes care of everybody. She is endlessly self-sacrificing. The only time we really see Ch- Charlie, quote unquote, parent her is when he grounds her at the end of New Moon because she literally ran away to a foreign country without telling him. Yeah. Like that is the only time Charlie seems paternal. Uh, Edward, on the other hand, is always looking out for her needs. He provides her with space to rest. He takes care of her in a way that is more than romantic. It's paternalistic, which is not to say that it's like incestuous in tone, right? But it is very patriarchal. He, the man, must take care of her, the weak woman. From a gender role standpoint, this is obviously essentialist and reflects some larger problems with gender in the series that we'll get into later. Uh, But in isolation, it's sort of a sweet and sexless gesture that lets Bella relax in the same way that being unable to read her thoughts lets Edward relax, right? See, if it was sexual, I'd be so much more down for it. Yeah. (laughs) I like like the trope of like, you work, you work, you work, and then the person you love is like, you need to stop, literally do nothing, I'll do it all for you. Mm -hmm. I love that. Like, I like, I enjoy the trope, like, um, um, from uh, this happens in a lot of books I read because this is what I like. But uh, the one that the Hades and Persephone one, Neon Gods, not is it that one? 
It's either that one or the other one. I read them around the same time. <laughs> she runs into she runs into the underworld and just destroys her feet. Mm-hmm. And she keeps running and keeps running. He's like, you are, because she has no shoes on. He's like, you're going to destroy your feet. And she won't stop. And so he picks her up and is like, absolutely not. Like, mm-hmm. I'm holding you. You're not going to run. And like, I'm making sure you don't hurt your feet. I like that. I'm cool with that. Yeah. I think that's, I, I like that. Like, because I push myself a lot. And I would love for someone to be like, stop. Mm-hmm. collaborate and listen i'm gonna take care of everything right. there's something cathartic there and it's but if it's <laughs> and like yes it can be done with a sexless act but if i'm reading this i want it to be <laughs> sexual i'm sorry yeah these are not uh despite being like very sexy books they're also not sexy at all they're so horny in so many ways and this not being one of the horny things i just <laughs> this was like so upsetting um another reason why it just feels like it just totally feels like a stroking of your own ego when mm-hmm. edward's like let me take care of you yeah i have to tell you about some things are you ready i'm ready to rumble <laughs> i'm gonna tell you about bubble laser bubble laser you have to say all the consonants bubble laser yeah unlike me You should say all the consonants. Uh, Bubble Laser is a professional freelance artist who specializes in Dungeons and Dragons. Listen up, everybody. Listen up, kids. Listen up, kids. Do you want to see what your character looks like illustrated by a crazy talented artist? Who doesn't? I bet you do. Would you like a printable custom character sheet with art of your character on it or custom tokens with your character's art for your virtual tabletop games? I bet you do. I bet you do, bitch. <laughs> do you want to immortalize your epic adventuring party with an epic piece of artwork? Of course you do. Then get your Dungeons and Dragons art commissioned by Bubble Laser. Bubble Laser has illustrated everything from company mascots to board games to podcast covers, but her real passion is bringing people's D&D characters to life, and she wants to draw yours, yours specifically. Uh, with over 700 completed orders on Fiverr.com, top seller status, and a 5.0 star rating, you can know that your beloved character will be well taken care of. So what are you waiting for? Uh, Bubble Laser likes to be reached at BubbleLaser.com, but you can also find her on Facebook or Instagram at BubbleLaser or on Fiverr.com. Just search for Bubble Laser. That's Bubble Laser, one word, with a Z. If you say it three times in the mirror, they show up. <laughs> she, she'll appear <laughs> and draw your D&D character. Um, you, I'll put links in the show notes, uh, but you can find her website, BubbleLaser.com. Again, that's Bubble Laser, one word with with a Z. Bubble Laser. The the. Z- the Z is in la- the laser part. The Z There's no surprise. There's no surprise <laughs> Z in the bubble part. Um, I would also like to tell you about Dwarven Rations. Cake. Cake. It's cake time. Dwarven Rations makes artisanal cakes with a dedication to quality. They are made in Bermuda and ship worldwide, and they've been doing that for over 20 years. That's 20 years. Not older than me, no. but I was young when they started. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, they have mini flavors, uh, traditional, so lemon and Madagascar vanilla, chocolate, light and fluffy yet brownie-like, swizzle, Mis- Michigan cherries, apricots, pineapple, mm. orange and lemon, think rum punch, uh, coconut, so coconut shreds with rum, so a pina colada flavor, and rum and ginger, apricots and ginger in the mm. spirit of a dark and stormy. And even better, each box can- includes a random tabletop RPG die. That's awesome. So you get cake and you get die. Dice. A cake to die for. A cake to die for. <laughs> they also offer these custom adverti- advertising cake kits for people who want to offer a new merchandise product, um, but don't want to have to buy and ship and pay for all of the inventory. They do all of that for you, and then they send you the cash as the cake sell, uh, which is great for starting up merch because there's so little upfront cost. Yeah, I mean you can't beat that. Um, 
They are fantasy themed and made by a dedicated group of gamers, nerds, and artists. Uh, currently, they are working out of the Bermuda Rum Cake Company in Bermuda, but are working to get a stateside bakery slash gaming center up and running in the coming months and years. And you can find out more about them on their webpage, which is docglass.com slash dwarven rations. That's D-O-C-K-G-L-A-S-S dot com slash dwarven rations. And we'll have a link to that in our show notes as well if you want to check them out. Okay cake <laughs> i agree i'm like pie not cake um so let's talk about age difference i love it another thing i love um so now we just- love so many of these things yeah so now we've established why somebody might kind of find this kind of masculinity attractive right um knowing we'll talk more about the idea of physical and emotional abuse later let's talk about the age difference um this is another point of contention for the series edward is over 100 years old biologically speaking even though he appears as a 17 year old bella is now 18 so she appears older than him but technically has far less life experience right now on the surface yes you have to ask what the fuck does this 100 percent 100 percent 100 plus year old man want with an 18 year old that is skeevy as fuck right on the surface yes i hear you uh in real life this is creepy Obviously not because there's a lot of 100 plus year old men running around out there that 18 year olds are like, oh, take me now. Right. Like that's not the but like, you know, that's a exaggerated version. Um, But still, you know, it's creepy in real life to have somebody who is like way, way, like not like a couple years older, but like 15, 20, 30, 40, 50. 40, 50. Like you kind of got to ask, hey, what's your interest here? And what are and you doing? It depends on uh, on the younger person's age. If they're yeah. like, if they're like. 35 years old and the other person's like 55 it's it's kind of like well a little bit difference there i feel like you as a 35 year old can probably make a judgment about your own life if you're 18 no No. honey your brain's not done (laughs) um so in fiction we have to look a little deeper right because i don't think age is functioning the same way that it does in real life in this series it's much more creepy that he goes to high school (laughs) so edward is obviously more mature than bella uh, I think we can agree that that's the case, right? But he doesn't feel like an adult to Absolutely me. Absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely. He tries to kill himself because he doesn't think Bella's alive anymore. What the fuck, dude? You got a family. Yeah. Like, they go on and on about Romeo and Juliet in the series or in this this book. And, like, part of the point of Romeo and Juliet is that it's a tragedy in part because they are children who don't know what they're doing. Maybe. I, does Stephanie Meyer, like, I truly want to know, does she know it's a tragedy? I think that she does because of what I read on her website. Right. Like, of it being, like, the epigraph being about danger. Yes. But I think she wanted to rewrite history. Yeah. It's like, just, she read it. And just as I was angry at the end of Taming of the Shrew, she's angry at the ending of Romeo and Juliet. I just, like... Edward emulating Romeo does not give me any confidence that he is mature, right? And I think part of part of the reason that he does not feel like an adult to me, despite the fact that he's over 100 years old, is because of the Cullen family structure. Mm-hmm. Despite Edward being physically older than Esme, she takes on the mother role in the family because she was biologically older than Edward at the time of their deaths, right? And also because of the series fixation on traditional gender roles, but we'll go to that later. Um this and Edward's behavior suggests to me that he is definite, while he is definitely biologically over 100 years old, I think vampirism in this world basically puts a stop on aging wherever you are in your maturity, either at the moment of death or when you've reached like, quote unquote, peak performance as a human. You have to. It has to. There's no other reason someone would go back to high school, <laughs> especially not just Edward, but like 
and Alice, but like the other two, yeah, who are clearly just don't give a fuck. Yeah, I think we'll see we'll see more of this later, and we'll return to this later. And if you know where the series is going, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. But what I mean here is that vampirism in the series seems to freeze you in an ideal state, which means that Edward is forever a mature but youthful teen. Carlisle is forever a reasonable father figure. Esme is forever a mother. Rosalie is forever a snobby young woman, etc. Yeah, it's the idea of being frozen in a state forever sucks ass to me. Eighteen year old sucks ass. Like, give me twenty five. Yeah, you have at that point you have to be idolizing the idea of youth in a way, and then you have to ask, well, why are you idolizing that? And uh, again, I think that comes back to the idea of like death worship and fear of death, and like the idea of preserving childhood innocence and childhood wonder. Um. I will say. Oh my a, god, this quote is unreadable. As a child, as a like a teen, I had zero fear of death. Yeah, because I felt like a child. I felt I was like young. I I'm not gonna age. I'm young. I'm always the youngest one here. Wow, that feels bad when you're no longer the youngest one there. <laughs> I was always the youngest one at work, and then somebody came in younger, and I was like, well, I guess I'm old now. <laughs> um. So this is a quote from How Old Are You? Bear with me here, if you hear bumping. Uh, this is the tiniest checks I've ever seen in my life. So this is a quote from How Old Are You? Representations of Age in the Saga by Ashley Benning, who writes, uh, Galette does not accept the idea that aging is necessarily related solely to the physical. She analyzes cultural ageism and its effect on her own life in declining to decline, cultural combat, and the politics of the midlife. Of aging, she writes, quote, the basic idea we need to absorb is that whatever happens in the body, human beings are aged by culture first of all. Everything we know of as culture in the broadest sense, discourses, feelings, practices, institutions, material conditions is saturated with concept of age and aging, unquote. It makes sense then that marketing firms, the film industry and the publishing industry would take advantage of this cultural awareness of age in their sales strategies. She later notes, quote, we think we age by nature. We are insistently and precociously being aged by culture. Unquote. If what Galette says here is true, that age is culturally is a culturally constructed system of meaning and not necessarily tied to the body, then all sorts of new types of age can be found in texts. In the case of Twilight, the immortal vampires adopt classic characteristics of aging, but do not biologically age. They there are, in fact, several age paradigms within the text. Physical age, emotional maturity, intellectual maturity, and various in-betweens, such as the physically mature but emotionally stunted wolves or the intellectually mature but physically stunted vampires. I don't know if I agree that the werewolves are emotionally stunted. Um, we'll get to that later. Uh, I don't agree with, with the interpretation here, but I think that the part about aging by culture is an important point. So... Aging has physical effects, of course, right? Uh, Especially the older that you get. But any meaning tied to age is culture, right? We we construct it. Our feelings about aging are always influenced by our culture. The idea of chasing eternal youth through vampirism is something that is culturally constructed, too. Why desire to be young forever? Why not desire to be middle-aged or in your 30s? Your knees start going out. Or 70. And you got new knees. You got new (laughs) hips. The idea of the prime of life is constructed, enforced, and sold to us by our culture. It is not real. I would rather be 30 than 20. I would like to be 28. My lived experience of being 30 is a whole fucking lot better than my lived experience of being in my 20s. I like 28. I feel like that's a strong, that's a strong choice. 
So when we look at the idea of aging in Twilight as something that Bella finds horrific and that the narrative seems to idealize as stopping at 23, that is Carlisle's age. I am not joking. What? The oldest looking, quote unquote, good vampire is 23 fucking years old. I thought he was like 30 or 35. No, he is 23, at least according to Google. So he just barely got, got a brain. No, he's not even done. The what? brain is not done until 25. Oh, I thought it was 22. No. He only has half a brain. He only has half a brain. (laughs) He's a smart kid. He must be really smart to be a doctor. (laughs) So when we look at the idea of aging in Twilight as something that Bella finds horrific and that the narrative seems to idealize as stopping at 23, we need to remember that this is all culturally influenced, right? Personally, I don't want to be 23 forever. Being 23 fucking sucked. Like I said, your brain is not fully developed yet. But again, to bring in his dark materials because it can't stop the idolization of youth and innocence serve our culture as well right it keeps us compliant it keeps us buying products and it suggests that youth and innocence bring us closer to god but again those ideas are not real right they're not real there is no reason that at 33 i should not have fine lines right like what is wrong with having lines on my face i don't know about you but I'm feeling 22. I want to be 22 because I, I want to be able to be like, I don't know about you. I'm feeling 22 all the time. Um, no. I don't know if we were 22 when this happened, but I have a very distinct memory of us being, we couldn't have been 22. Um, of being, And we are the same age as Taylor Swift, so it, it, it's not like it would have come out when we were younger, though, of uh, getting in one of the carts and singing, I'm feeling 22. I do not remember this. I don't know if I've put two different memories together, but I enjoy the memory of being in the <laughs> cart singing, I don't know about you, and I'm feeling 22. <laughs> like, there's really, the idea of aging is, like, there are some real physical effects of aging, right? But there, the idea of aging and there being something wrong with aging is not real, right? There's no tangible effect to it. Or there's I mean, no... You start, your body starts going out. Well, now hold on, Mary. You hold on. Aging processes from my quick Google Google search don't really start until your 30s. And aside from minor things like fine lines, do not really affect you internally until a decade or decades later. Hmm. I don't know. My skin's not as great. Why does that matter? Because when I feel it, I can feel the texture and it doesn't feel good. Why does that matter? Because I don't like how it feels. Why don't you like how it feels? What's wrong with it? Because it doesn't feel smooth, and I like smooth things. Why? Because I want to feel like a baby's bottom. Exactly. Why do you want to feel like a baby's bottom, Mary? Because I like bottoms. Because you, because you're idolizing youth. Idolizing bottoms. You're idolizing bottoms. <laughs> um, you are not on a slow march toward death when you hit 20, Bella. Like Sure you are. You're not even fully who you will become because your brain is still developing. You're not done. Um, this is a quote from a post-feminist romance, Love, Gender, and Intertextuality in Stephanie Meyer's Saga by Hila Shachar. Shakar. Um, again, I'm removing my microphone, so bear with any bumps that you hear. In the beginning of New Moon, Bella examines her face in the mirror for signs of impending wrinkles as she recovers from a haunting dream in which her aging body is a sign of horror rather than of personal development. In such instances, Bella's scrutiny of her physical appearance assumes the work of Edward's own desiring gaze throughout the novels in which she considers herself as a physical object for an external gaze. This demonstrates how Bella has internalized such a gaze as a form of self-criticism, highlighting a gender politics in which young women create their sense of worth through self-destructive definitions of their identity as dependent upon the masculine gaze and their pleasing appearance for such a gaze this ultimately results in a sense of alienation from themselves as objects rather than subjects um 
Bella's obsession with her age and the aging process is also emblematic of how she thinks about herself, right? As an object of desire for Edward. If she is having fine lines on her face, if she is looking older, she doesn't really care about how she looks. She care about how she looks to Edward. Uh, when she looks at herself and her invisible signs of aging, she is 18. <laughs> she is not seeing herself. She is seeing the thing that Edward wants. She isn't seeing herself as a person, just as a body to be attracted to. This tracks with Bella's low self-esteem, which we see throughout the books, right? But that's never really addressed until she does become a vampire, at which point it magically disappears, right? Obviously, we won't get into that yet, but there is no real self-actualization or growth for Bella except by magic. Because she is doesn't have a brain. She has no brain. Um, there are a couple of things to pull out of this, right? One, Bella's hangups about age are all culturally generated and coming from a place of misunderstanding. Two, this hangup is also reflective of her low self-esteem, which troubles me a lot more because of her being this aspirational figure for readers and this character who is developed so that readers can put themselves into her. Like that's part of the reason that she's kind of a vacuous hole is that so you can see yourself in her, right? If she finds her self-esteem because she literally dies and enters into a state to a state that, as we have discussed, is a lot like heaven. What does that tell readers? <laughs> Again, this feels much worse to me than Edward's creepy behavior. I'm so much more on board with Edward being a fucking creep getting into her room than the idea that we should aspire to be objects of desire. I think it. I, w I would love to ask this question of Steffi Meyer because at first, my first thought is, well, of course she has self-esteem issues because a lot of people have self-esteem mm -hmm. issues and it's easy to put yourself in that position. Yes. But then you say, but ultimately you get in the self, the, that back by dying essentially and, yeah. and becoming. So what is her, like, I get the first part of her thinking, but how does she get to the second part of her thinking? And I'd be really curious to hear her, hear what she has to say about that, because I think that is really obvious. And I think it's clear, like the way that she wrote Bella's for people to put themselves in there. Mm -hmm. And then she just, it's almost like she completely destroys the reader <laughs> by being like, because it's unrealistic. You'll never have it. The thing that gets me here is that Bella finds confidence in herself and she finds uh, self-love through the act of dying and becoming a perfect version of herself. She does not find it by loving herself. I guess, I mean, I'd have to know more about the Mormon religion, but I would imagine there's a lot of, based off of what I know and what I know from many religions, there's probably the sense of not complete until you've created a family. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that's where when you create a family, you, I would imagine this is part of it. When you create the family, which she wants to do with Edward, that's when she gains her self-confidence back because she has become whole. Yes. I, th I think that she is when she, at the end of the series, which we'll get to later. I think the idea is that she has finally become the person that she was meant to become a mother. End of story. And a wife. <laughs> Sorry, and a wife. She never she never learns to love herself, right? She never stops thinking of herself as anything but an object of desire for Edward and eventually a mother to her child. And like there is so much more to being a person than what you are to other people, right? And that's again, that's the thing that really gets me about this series is not Edward's creepy behavior or taking the engine out of her car, which we're not even to yet. But the idea that the aspirational figure is one who cannot love herself until she dies. That's like, that's like fucked up to me. <laughs> well, I'm sure. In, in, Sorry about it. I'm sure in Stephanie Myers, it, it, the, it's complete opposite of she cannot love herself until she truly loves somebody else. She lives as ugh. becoming, dying as 
But it makes sense. I need to take a fucking shower. Because dying brings you to heaven, right? Mm -hmm. So by dying, she's becoming perfect. Perfect. And so that's why she does. That makes sense. Okay. I I don't need to talk to her anymore. I need to take a goddamn shower. (laughs) I don't want to write off the idea that romanticizing these extreme age differences themselves is something that we should be isn't something that we should be cognizant of as readers, right? I think, of course, we should be aware of when fiction is being like, yeah, absolutely, this is, it's totally normal for a 100-year-old man to date an 18-year-old. Um, but I also think that ages are doing something different in Twilight than they are in real life because mm-hmm. of what we talked about earlier, the idea of heaven as a pure and perfect state of being in this series represented by vampirism. Once again, I am desperately trying to not step on the toes of the eventual episode of The Amber Spyglass, but Pullman's work quite clearly draws a line between the idol, the idealization of the innocent state of pre-sexual development in childhood innocence and godliness in twilight we have age purity and immortality intertwined and we have bella our protagonist longing to become immortal so that she never has to grow up um so this is a quote from the twilight of sexual liberation undead abstinence ideology by carol siegel cannot express how small it is very small the text is um The majority of feminists, or at least the ones with the most authority in popular media, who believe that our mission as regards to young girls is to empower them to say no to sex, might want to read this as an affirmation of the girl's right to wait until she is ready. But what the film actually shows us is a girl who must wait until the much older lover who is grooming her to be his sexual object finds her ripe and ready. So although she seems on the right track, Christine Seifert is wrong in that this is not something new, not abstinence porn at all, but something quite familiar dressed up in abstinent vampire drag. Twilight is pedophilic porn. It is aimed not at the adult who desires a barely pubescent girl, but at the little girl herself as a member of the target tween audience. It reminds me of being told, I'm still told this, and I remember having this revelation of girls mature faster than boys. Oh, I've got that in the outline. Don't even worry. Uh, I remember having this revelation. I was like, oh, my God, that's so we'll feel okay with dating older men. (laughs) Now, I stand by what I said. Right. But Mukherjee makes does make an important point here about what is being communicated subtextually. This is fiction directed at young women, whoever else might comprise the audience. Right. But it is directed at young women. Um, And by way of it's easy to identify with protagonists, it suggests that the best thing a young woman can do is find herself a mature boy and let him make all the decisions. Right. Because we have a normalized idea in our society that girls mature faster than boys, something Bella literally says in New Moon, if I remember correctly. It's not uncommon for media and even other people in our lives to sell us the idea that young women should seek out older partners. Stories like this one, when taken in isolation, can be simple fantasy, right? When taken in isolation, who fucking cares? Read your May-December romances. I don't care. But in the larger context of a world that sexualizes girls basically at the onset of puberty and rarely questions the idea of why an older man might be interested in a younger woman, I think is worth questioning. There was literally a countdown from the Olsen twins turned 18. Yeah. And it's like, you know... It's not I, I don't want these books banned. I don't say I don't think that children should not be able to read them. I think that that's ridiculous. But I think that we need to have these conversations about them so that the young intended audiences are able to push back on these ideas, are able to articulate discomfort, um, are able to question the things that they're that they're told. Right. I think that that's a, that's an important part of of reading. I love the vampire diaries. It was like, nah, they just fuck a lot. Oh, yeah. And and uh what we do in the shadows. I became a vampire to suck blood and fuck forever. 
Um, and part of this, I think, goes back to our culture's idolization of youth as the antidote to death, among a bunch of other complicated issues, right? But the issue I see in Twilight is that so many people read this series and found themselves wanting a man just like Edward. In the world of the series, that means a forever 17 vampire. In the real world, that means an older man, perhaps even a lot older. It is interesting that he never, like, technically becomes legal. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I think part of that is, like, then it's quote unquote not bad because Bella is the older one. Like I think that there's kind of this like intentional dodging of Which like then the, if they don't quote unquote age, problematic then. is. Yeah. Um, and for a 17 or 18 or even 19 year old, that that idea of being with a lot old a man who's a lot older can mean being in an unequal, imbalanced power dynamic that can result in exploitation. Especially when he has all the money, he right? Has, he has much more worldly. He literally has control over her body. Like he literally has that. Mm-hmm. These things are not fixed. They're not always true. But I believe it is worth being skeptical about and not encouraging young people to seek out relationships with people much older than themselves. That's ripe for exploitation or abuse, right? That's what I'm getting at here is like, yes, in the context of fantasy, sure, people have fantasies about this kind of thing. In Twilight, I think age is doing something different than it is in the real real world. But at the same time, I think that Mukherjee makes a really valid point here, which is that this is essentially telling young girls the best thing that you as a more mature person can do is to seek out a man who is older than you and more mature than you. And then you get and then you get the album Red. And then you get immediately wifed up and all sorts of terrible things happen that we'll get to in the later books. Um, in Mormon Vampires in the Garden of Eden by John Granger, which talks about the appeal of Twilight for Christians, he brings up the fun, uh, the fundamentalist polygamous parts of the Ch- Church of Latter-day Saints, which includes marrying young girls in their young teens to older men in a practice that is some, sometimes called celestial marriage. Now, celestial marriage can mean more than one thing but it sometimes means the specific practice. Now, to be clear, Granger states that this practice is, quote, uh, quote, above and outside the law, unquote, in the Mormon belt. It is not standard. There's some great TV shows about it. Yeah, the thing I want to make clear here is that there's a lot of... Um, a lot of people say a lot of things about the Mormon church that are not held true by the modern Mormon church, except maybe fundamentalist angles. Just like Christ- there's fundamentalist Christians. Exactly. So when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm talking about this, I am talking about a specific fundamentalist practice and not a practice that every Mormon practices. But these fundamentalists still came from the basis yes. of the religion. Exactly. So you can't ignore it. And yeah, exactly. It's, again, similar to other branches of Christianity. Uh, so this is a quote This is a quote from that essay. Um, when Bella meets Edward in January 2005, he is well over 100 years old, though he seems to be 17. Their relationship is hurried along because of Bella's fear that, if she isn't transformed into a vampire soon, she will become an unattractive old woman while he remains forever youthful. Edward, of course, says his love has nothing to do with age but he also asserts that their marriage is a necessary condition for his making her a vampire since bella's whole life and her apotheosis depend on her fixed relationship with edward the real life nightmare and crime of man-child marriage that sorry of man-child marriage that's different from man-child <laughs> emphasis is everything um, the real life nightmare and crime of man-child marriage that krakauer lays at the feet of mormonism is repackaged by meyer saying by meyer as a child repackaged by Meyer as a child saving spiritual practice that the good guy insists upon. So celestial marriage more generally refers to marriage that is quote unquote sealed in the Mormon faith. And this means that the marriage will last through eternity beyond death, etc. So example, like to make this really clear in traditional cr- Christian ceremonies, you have the line to till death do us part, right? Mm-hmm. That is not part of the Mormon marriage ceremony. It, I don't remember what the actual line is, but it but it basically says beyond death. So when you're married in the Mormon church and you are sealed, that means that your your marriage goes beyond death. 
Um, in the past, men could be sealed to multiple wives, whether due to divorce or death, etc. But also in the early days of the church, simply because they believed that God encouraged them to have multiple wives to produce as many children as possible. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's just right in there that says it. Yeah, the, no, it is, from what I understand. Yeah. The, the practice now by, by like mainstream Mormon officials is that that is not allowed like we do not do that anymore it during during the early days of the mormon church when we were trying to make as many mormons as possible yeah sure it made sense to have a lot of wives i would imagine no maybe that's jehovah's witness um now with you know updates to the mormon church hashtag feminism women can also be sealed to multiple husbands uh but the mainstream mormon church has banned polygamy and quote unquote placement marriages which were essentially arranged marriages sometimes with young girls it was basically you were promised this bride when she comes of age these marriages basically promised young girl to an adult man um we will see this again later in twilight uh but not yet oh man to an extreme yep but what's relevant here is the idea that this marriage between edward and bella mirrors the practice of celestial marriage right there is no plurality to it like most modern day mormons they do not have more than one spouse it's just edward and bella but their marriage is meant to be eternal and to last beyond death and because edward is so is biologically so much older than bella but we know that we means only that he means only the best for her and would never do anything to harm her whether we agree with that or not, that is what's being communicated. And they truly are in love, right? Again, that's what's being communicated. Um, this does serve as a sort of positive repackaging of this practice of sealing and celestial marriage, right? Mm-hmm. Which is unique to Mormons and not seen in other Christian religions. It's sort of a softening of this scene, of this thing that is seen as weird or gross to outsiders, right? Like if you, mm-hmm. if you ask the average person, like, what is a Mormon religious practice? It'd be like, oh, polygamy right or bigamy specifically um and like that it's like that's not that's not true of the mormon church like the modern mormon church Mm -hmm. and so this you can read this as a sort of softening of the like no this is what's really meant by it and like maybe it is what's really meant by it right in modern in modern day mormonism maybe this is what's really meant by it um it's not it's not the thing is that I not I, d- I don't necessarily have a problem with it, but being aware of Myers's religion and how it's influencing the text, despite her denial that it is, I think is important in being a critical reader of this series. And we're especially going to get into this in the next section, which is about racism. Oh, yeah. Um, so if you are an ignorant white teenager which most teenager teenagers are ignorant. This is not a slam at anybody who didn't notice. Um, But if you are an ignorant white teenager, it is easy to miss the racist depiction of the Quileute people throughout the series, right? Uh, For one, our culture tends to treat Native Americans as a lost people of the past. For one, like I said, our culture tends to treat Native American Native Americans as a lost people of the past, as in they no longer exist, right? Or to paint them as universally impoverished alcoholics or as wise sages in touch with the land. Nothing in between. Can't have both, but you can only have two. Yeah. Interestingly, on the surface, Twilight doesn't do this, right? We're going to set aside the mythology question for for now. We're going to get back to that. Um, But the depictions of the Quileute Reservation definitely look more working class than like the Colon household, sure. But they are not super different from Charlie's house, yeah, no, in my opinion. I know, I would totally agree with that. And, you know, the, Jacob doesn't have a, a mother on screen, right? But he Can seems... to find out what happens to his mom? I think later. Okay. Um, but he seems quite happy with just his father, right? Jacob does not appear to come from a broken home, which is often how Native Americans are depicted in media, uh, especially media created by white people. That feels better 
right, at first glance than more stereotypical depictions. Um, But it gets complicated. So some of the praise I saw for this movie was that Native Americans aren't depicted doing like traditional dances or wearing traditional outfits, which like, yeah, Native folks are not doing that every moment of every day, right? But at the same time, right, there's nothing wrong with doing those things. There is nothing wrong with with the traditional cultural practices of Native Americans. And assimilationist mentality from a colonizer's perspective is not actually progressive. I'm not going to give Stephanie Meyer credit for not having her Native American characters do anything traditional because she's she's a, like she has a colonizer mentality. Not that I think Stephanie Meyer should have tried to depict cultural practices because she didn't even bother to get the mythology right before attaching it to a real group of people. So my hopes are not high that she could do it well. Anyway, let's get into some of the issues in this book, which again is going to tie into Meyer's religion. So please bear with me. Um, We're going to start with some things from the Book of Mormon and how they might contribute to the novel's views specifically of 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 people of color and specifically of Native American and Black people. I hope people listen to our first one before they listen to this one so they know we go into not loving this book. Yeah. Because <laughs> somebody come in here and be like, wow. Yeah. I have, there's so much I wanted to say about this that I, like, I ran out of space for. Like, the imagining of uh, Forks, Washington as some kind of, like, place where all kinds of cultures come together yeah, it's and just hang like, out. It's just and a small town in Washington. And the... Like, rural Washington is super racist. Yeah, that's... Yeah. I have a lot to hardcore. say. Hardcore. I have a lot to say about that. So we're going to talk about some representations and, and some um, some things in the Book of Mormon with how they might contribute to the novel's views of people of color and specifically Native American and Black people. When we're going through this, I want to be sure that I acknowledge that the Mormon church has made some changes to these views over time, right? Um one of the new heads of the Mormon church like said black lives matter at a meeting and that caused like kind of a reckoning within the church. I did not know that. Yeah. I, I wanted to look it up cause I'm like, what is the view of this now? Like what, where are we? Cause you think that they would get behind that. Yeah. So, that most religions would though. So y- you would think, um, so like there has been like a reckoning in the Mormon church about like what is acceptable and what isn't. Um, so again, changes have been made, whether or not you want to accept those changes is entirely up to you. But I want to be sure that I acknowledge that the church is no longer actively claiming these things exactly as they appeared in early versions of the book of Mormon and up to as recently as the 2010s, right? There are buildings at like Brigham Young university named after slaveholders that members of the church have been pushing, especially, you know, members of the, um, of the church who are black or indigenous, um, like people pushing for the removal of those, but those things still exist, you know, but I want to be clear that the things that were in the early book of Mormon, many of them have been disavowed by modern mainstream Mormons. So keep in mind that many of these are historical beliefs that may still be part of the beliefs of some people in the church. And if anything seems wrong or unbelievable, I encourage you to do your own research rather than take our very simplified version of these ideas as no pun intended gospel. (laughs) But also how old was Stephanie Meyer when she wrote these? I think she was in her late 20s, early 30s, maybe. So, like, it's it's feasible to believe that when she, growing up, she was taught. Well, like lot. I said, many of these these things were in the Book of Mormon yeah. until up until the 2010s, which would have been after Stephanie Meyer wrote the books. Yeah. So, That's right. you know. So, we're going to start with the Lamanites. I hope I'm saying that correctly. According to Natalie Wilson, referring to Mormon scholar Fawn Brody in It's a Wolf Thing, the Quileute Werewolf slash Shapeshifter Hybrid as Noble Savage. Noble Savage long name. Um, the Book of Mormon, quote, names Native Americans as a cursed race, unquote. The Book of Mormon contains the story of two warring people, the, quote, fair and delightsome, unquote, Nephites, described, delightsome. De- described as 
quote, peace-loving and domestic, unquote, and the, quote, wild and ferocious, bloodthirsty, unquote, Lamanites. That's what I want to be. Who fell out of favor with God and were cursed with dark skin. So. Yike. Yeah. Uh, so this is a quote from It's a Wolf Thing, the Quileute Werewolf Shapeshifter Hybrid as Noble Savage by Natalie Wilson. These two races supposedly fought for a thousand years with the evil dark-skinned Lamanites eventually killing off the white Nephite race. In a reversal of genocide, the darker-skinned Lamanites were said to have slaughtered the Nephites, leaving only Moroni, 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 son of the heroic Nephite leader Mormon, who would eventually lead Smith to the gold plates that contained the Book of Mormon. So to add a bit from this, what I, from what I understand from reading Wikipedia, the Nephites eventually also fell out of favor with God due to their decadence and they were destroyed by the Lamanites. Later, the Lamanites and the Nephites banded together and were all considered children of God. So various versions of the Book of Mormon identified the Nephites as white or pure, depending on translation, and the Lamanites as dark or black. Unclear if in modern terms, this would be capital B black or lowercase black. From my reading, many Mormon scholars identify the Lamanites as representing one or more Native American tribes. Um, So another quote here from that same essay. Yet, if these cursed people accept God, and more specifically Mormonism, quote, their their scales of darkness shall begin to fall from their eyes, and many generations shall not pass away among them, save they shall be a pure white and delightsome people, people, which is a quote from the Book of Mormon. These racialized beliefs resulted historically in Mormon's thoroughly documented history of framing Indians for crimes committed by Latter-day Saints. In addition to disguising themselves as natives and committing murder and theft, Mormon leaders also encouraged natives to attack Gentiles with promises they would share their plunder. Thus, not only does Mormon scripture codify racism as ordained by God, Mormon practice reveals that cultural exploitation was an acceptable practice. What, however, does all this have to do with Twilight? I got super hung up on the scales of darkness and then shedding them and being like, I'm delightful. <laughs> and like, just seeing a horror movie. Yeah. Um, so... Here we have that white and delightsome terminology again, which has appeared in these texts in various translations as pure white or pure, depending on translation. It really sounds like a really kind version of like something an alt-right person would say. Yeah. It's just a really kind (laughs) version. Um, I don't, when I, when I talk about this, the fact that sometimes it's pure white and sometimes it's pure, depending on translation, I do not mean this to absolve the Book of Mormon of any wrongdoing, but rather to be clear that alternate translations exist and there is a growing consciousness among mainstream Mormons that ascribing morality to skin color is an extremely racist and should not be part of their practice, even if it is traditional in their foundational religious text. I just want to acknowledge that. I'm not trying to absolve the Book of Mormon of the content that it contains. With that disclaimer out of the way, this is unfortunately accurate to what's going on in Twilight. You have the pure pacifist white colons, the good vampires, versus the russet, meaning reddish brown, quileute, who are uncontrollable, angry, impulsive, and violent. Um, Another quote here from that same essay. The Cullen vampire life is presented as blessed and opulent, while the Cullens are depicted as exceedingly, quote, white and delightsome, unquote, Quileute wolves are forced into a life of servitude wherein they lack free choice. And if we read the Cullens as persecuted Mormons forced to migrate further and further west before finding their virtual Zion and Forks, we might interpret the Quileute as the descendants of the dark-skinned Lamanites who, if only they will accept Mormon slash vampire ways, will be able to become themselves a, quote, white and delightsome people instead of russet-skinned shapeshifters, much like Jacob has assimilated into the Cullen clan by the series' close. Like, you can't deny it. 
Mm -hmm. These Mormon underpinnings of the saga, combined with the use of werewolf and shapeshifting lore, provide readers with a tale in which the wolf slash other is presented as racially, spiritually, and socioeconomically inferior. It's just like, don't tell me you didn't have a bias. Um, So we haven't even touched on the wolf thing yet. Uh, The Quileute creation story, the real one. Uh, involves the first Quileute people being transformed from wolves into humans, honoring the bravery of the wolf. Notably, not its viciousness or even its protectiveness. It's honoring the bravery. In Myers' story, some of the Quileute are werewolves to fight the vampires, the quote-unquote cold ones, which just absolutely smacks of a white person impersonating the way a Native American term might be translated into English, in my opinion. She drew this inspiration from the Quileute story, but radically changed it, making them the enemies of the vampires, including the Cullens, who we are meant to like, right? We are meant to like the Cullens, and then she makes the Quileute people into their enemies. The prejudice between the Quileutes and the vampires is distasteful, especially when you consider the history of white colonizers abusing, executing, and oppressing the Native American people whose land they encroached on. This happened with the Quileute. This is part of the Quileute people's history who were forced into missionary schools that operated on ideologies like kill the Indian, save the man, which was used as an excuse to exterminate the cultural practices, to get rid of the um, traditional languages and traditional you know, stories, dress, all of those kinds of things. That was what was meant by kill the Indian, save the man. It's and like, I didn't realize this until I moved to Washington, but like not everyone learns about missions. Mm-hmm. So if you don't know about missions, like that idea, and they are run by religious, religious um, entities, uh, literally up and down the California coast. Yes. Like, like, like a lot, like, yes, like a lot. So yes. like, this isn't, this is not like, um, special to that area. This is something that happened to a lot, a lot of Mm -hmm. Native people. Yes. And they were also forced to sign treaties that granted the land they owned Mm -hmm. to the white colonizers colonizers in exchange for things like exclusive fishing rights that they already had before the colonizers arrived and took them away. Their heritage was forcibly stamped out through missionary schools, violence, and other forms of oppression. And here comes Stephanie Meyer in the 2000s to rewrite their creation story into them being werewolves who are angry at our favorite vampires for no reason, and then to paint the werewolves as prejudice for it. Yeah. That's a lot. Um, I'm going to put a link to this in the show notes, um, but there's an organization or uh, a fundraiser called Move to Higher Ground, which is an ongoing fundraising organization to help the Quileute move their homes and cultural buildings to higher ground as their lo- their current location is threatened by things like tsunamis and climate change. Um, and again, the reason those buildings are at this location close to the close to the ocean is because of colonization. Their lands were forcibly stolen by white colonizers and now they're being threatened by climate change, which is also caused primarily by white colonizers. So um, I encourage you to read more about it and consider donating to move to higher ground. Again, there will be a link in the show notes to that. Um, Notably, the Quileute have not seen a penny of the money that Meyer, the film creators and merchandise makers of Forks have made using their culture, history and iconography in promoting the series. I don't know why this surprised me so much, but like my mouth fell open when I read this. I I I just can't I don't know why I can't believe it, but it's just so it's so like uh 
<laughs> I read uh, I read a lot I read a lot of different articles and there's obviously different differing opinions within the Quileute tribe of course because they're not a monolith um about things like monetize like there's like very famously or there was I don't know if there still is a coffee stand near the near the reservation called uh, Jacob's Java which is like owned by by native people so that they can you know make some money or, or like they were encouraged to you know create their own tours that kind of thing um but like there's there's differing opinions on on but they were encouraging encouraging right, they weren't it. just like they weren't just like oh have some money because we used your land um <laughs> so like they literally could like i know it's really expensive to film in washington but i'm curious about how expensive it would be to film on a native land and right because it's sovereign a bunch of money to do it yeah um they may have been and they may have said no that's very possible yeah but i think still. i think uh there's also like there are also has been like increased awareness of like the the um quillute struggle for i don't think it was federal recognition i could be wrong but um there has there was also like a struggle over fishing rights and that kind of stuff and the increased attention from from twilight and twilight fans actually helped raise awareness for what they were cool. what they were going through and therefore like helped them succeed in their cause so like it's not it's not all bad but like the fact that you know stephanie meyer and the production company is creating these movies and scholastic the yeah. publisher made all of this fucking money and the quillute did not see it is that's another thing of like that is not the the production company giving money that right is. so like it just it it's just ah. yeah and there <laughs> there are, there are lots of articles out there on this but this includes things like msn tramping through a tribal cemetery Ooh. and filming fam filling filming gravestones without consent uh, another thing i learned is that american ip laws do not apply to native american cultural property so, wow yeah so it is totally legal for for somebody to make fake quillute stuff or even to use real quillute artwork sell it and fa face no repercussions um i'm going to put an article in the show notes which is called draining the quillute dry from the new york times that talks about this extensively and it's very very worth reading um another thing i want to know is that wolves have very different i know this is going to feel like a left turn but we'll i'll steer it back i promise um it's worth noting that wolves have different connotations in different cultures right european folklore tends to fa paint wolves as vicious and wild like think of how they appear in fairy tales right they're usually the enemy they're scary unless you're missy unless you're me and those stories were carried to america during colonization right elsewhere in the world including in you know what is now america that interpretation was not always true wolves could be brave they could be community driven they could be protectors and so on to impose the idea of wolves as predatory violent and unpredictable on native folklore is not only a historical it is colonial like that is a colonial practice um and the indigenous eye candy of this film because there are a lot of like the notably the um the Quileute characters are less clothed than the Cullens. Um, that isn't unworthy of scrutiny either. So this is another quote from that same essay, It's a Wolf Thing, uh, by Natalie Wilson. While the explanation the text offers that shape-shifting makes wearing clothes difficult is plausible, the film adaptation's obsess obsessive focus on the half-naked wolf pack smacks of objectification. Though it is still relatively rare to see semi-naked white males in film, this is not the case for non-white males, a trend with a long history as noted by Dyer. Quote, in the Western, the plantation drama and the jungle, the jungle adventure film, the non-white body is routinely on display, unquote. As Dyer reminds us, quote, clothes are bearers of prestige, notably of wealth, status, and class. To be without them is to lose prestige. Listen, 
I don't buy the fact that it's like, well, they shape and so they can't, they're, like, they're not, they're half dressed all the time. Because let's take the, let's take the non-legal people out of, out of this. Why didn't I see more butts? Why didn't I see any dick? <laughs> yeah. Because it doesn't just come off the top. <laughs> so This isn't a Hulk situation. <laughs> so even the fact that the wolves are standing around half naked all the time also carries colonial baggage. Their lack of clothing not only echoes one of the passages about the Lamanites from the Book of Mormon, where they are described as, quote, a bloodthirsty people wandering about in the wilderness with a short skirt girded about their loins, unquote but is commonly used as shorthand for savagery in film. Notice how the Cullens, nor any other vampire, is ever depicted that way. Even if there is a practical reason for the werewolves to be half-dressed, there is so much cultural baggage here that we cannot pretend it is just about eye candy and nothing else. It must be so cold. Also, well, they I, run hot, remember? He always has a fever. Where are his hard nipples? <laughs> <laughs> There's so much, so many inconsistencies So many questions here. So many questions here. So many questions. Um, this is not to say that it's like, quote-unquote, problematic to depict any man of color as an object of desire. It's just that there is so much context to this, the treatment of indigenous people in the film and the books, the specific treatment of the Quileute by Twilight, and so on, that it is not as simple as teen girls want to see Taylor Lautner without a shirt on. And let's be let's be honest, teen girls want to see Edward without a shirt just as much. So Yeah. <laughs> so, But so. then he would sparkle, and we don't want to see... I don't but know. But girls want to see it. Yeah, I don't know. And this isn't even the end of it. So stay tuned for the next episode, I guess. Uh, so lastly, let's talk about gender dynamics. Um, it is not a secret that these books just love traditional gender roles, right? That is not a secret. Um, and pointing that out is literally the easiest criticism on earth, right? Oh, these books, traditional gender roles. You're right. You're correct. I don't think Stephanie Meyer is going to be like, no. I think she'd be like, yeah. Thank you. There's nothing wrong with that. A woman can choose whatever she wants. Um, as we have discussed on our previous in our previous episode on Twilight and also our episode on the Vampire Diaries, there are reasons this kind of thing may be appealing to modern audiences, mm -hmm. including ones including audiences that would identify themselves as feminist. We are not going to relitigate that. Just know that the desire for a traditionally feminine role is not itself an issue. Again, it does not make you a bad feminist to want to be a homemaker. But Bella is a trad wife. <laughs> this is the best thing you've ever said. Um, Tradwife is a neologism referring to women who pursue the role of traditional, who pursue traditional gender roles in relationships I've and heard the this, home. I've heard this before, but I've always thought it was Chadwife, <laughs> <laughs> which still works. Um, but it's not just pursuing traditional gender roles. It carries a connotation of the alt-right and of conservative beliefs because it relies on the, on the idea that the traditional way is the right way right it's not making a choice it's this is the correct way for a woman to behave that's different from simply choosing to be a stay-at-home mom for example because you want to do so it's you it's doing so because that is the correct path according to culture and the reason i say this about bella is not because she voices a clear desire to be barefoot in the kitchen with a baby on each arm yet it's because her imagined future for herself is only as Edward's wife, eternally young and beautiful and married to Edward and nothing else. And like, whatever. I really don't give a shit about what Bella does. I don't really give a shit about Bella, period. What's worse to me is that her viewpoint is countered with Edward's idea that she should go to college, which she hates and will not do. This gives Bella the illusion of a choice, right? This, this is always something that I thought was so weird because one, she loves school. Mm -hmm. She's good at school. Two, the fuck else are you gonna do right like this gives 
her the illusion of making a choice. She is choosing to become a traditional wife. She knows there are other options, and Edward, our strong and progressive and sweet love interest, would never think of trapping her in a traditional gender role. He doesn't have to, because Bella has, quote-unquote, chosen this for herself. But we have to remember, Bella is a fictional character. She cannot choose anything. Fictional narratives are constructed. And Meyer has chosen to show us a young woman whose only desire for the future is to be married as soon as possible to a man who is older than her, biologically, to never go to college, even though the Cullens inexplicably go to high school, and she'll literally have an eternity to go to college. Maybe she just wants to go to high school over and over again. Oh, my God. And to not have a career, probably because she doesn't need one since the Cullens are filthy rich. Like... I guess she's living the dream, but what a low aspiration for herself, right? As far as I can tell, her desired future is staring into Edward's eyes for the rest of time. Well, imagine the the people she's surrounded herself with, like family. So she has her mother who does go out and do all these things, but is depicted as like wishy-washy, not a good mom. And then you have Charlie who is living in this town and doing like going through the motions and he sucks. Right. So like... I it makes sense in my mind like Steffi Myers put her in a perfect position to choose this. Yeah, I mean she's already the caretaker, yeah. right? She's she parents Charlie and Renee. Um how, like how did Charlie live before Bella moved to Forks? This is before DoorDash. Did he eat pizza every night? He probably had PBJs. God. He ate like me if I were if I didn't have to provide for my <laughs> husband, which I don't. So um, Bella is endlessly self-sacrificing and steps easily into the caretaker role in every interaction she has. She literally does not care about or for herself. It is absolutely fucking maddening. I hate it. I have a personal stake here, but seriously, the fact that every woman, we'll talk about Emily in a moment, is a caretaker in this series, except Renee, who is painted as somehow deviant, drives me up a fucking wall. Uh, There's a pattern here, right? It's not just about Bella. It's about the expectation that Bella's role is natural and proper and correct. Like, seriously, you're telling me nobody in this universe is asking why Bella has to be home every night to cook lasagna for her father, a grown ass man? You know, I, 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 like I said earlier, I, I enjoy the trope of like the caretaker works really hard and then, um, like is essentially doesn't give a shit about the way that they're treating themselves. And then the person they love comes in and be like, you gotta, you gotta give a shit. But this does it so lamely. No one, no, no one questions the fact that she should be doing this. Yeah. No one is like, you need to t- take a step back. It's mostly like, you're done, so come cuddle. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> let me let me give you a break, but you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, exactly. so we're not going to question that. So, like, the, the example I gave earlier of, like, Persephone running until her feet bled, that's not taking care of anybody. That's like that's not like that's just not caring about herself to a certain extent of just trying to get something done. So like this trope should have worked for me and it just didn't because of that. And and I think that is because the traditional gender roles are baked into the story throughout. Yeah. Nobody in this series questions heteronormativity and traditional gender roles because that would require the author to do so. And she does not. But man, it sure did it sure did prompt a lot of uh girls with knives books. <laughs> Um, so this is a quote. So the Burke Museum in Seattle is a natural history museum. That I still haven't been. Me have ne- I haven't either. We should go. Um, the Burke Museum put together a uh, sort of digital exhibit and like sort of fact check about the myths about the Quileute people and Twilight, um, which is visible on their website. So I have a quote I want to read from here, which is specifically about Emily, um, who is Sam's fiance, the the woman, the wolf girl, as Bella calls her. Uh, I didn't catch that. Yeah. 
Um, so this is a quote from that, uh, which reads, Emily, as, sub- as a subservient to Sam, exemplifies not a traditional role of women in the Native family, but rather a more sexist Western gender role. Native women, in contrast, are often leaders and decision makers in the household rather than solely the cooks and caretakers of the men. Today, women are often prominent leaders on tribal councils, such as the current Quileute chairwoman, Bonita Cleveland, mm-hmm. teachers and activists in their own communities. Women's roles have st- historically been equal to the roles of men, and this holds true today. While women in leadership roles might seem relatively progressive, according to Western standards, Native women have always maintained roles of authority, taking responsibility for preserving values and culture within the family and among the community. The role of Sue Clearwater shiftly shifts... Quickly shifts away from a leader on a council to a more passive and domestic role as a caregiver to the needy character Charlie Swan. I know we haven't hit Sue Clearwater yet, but you know. Uh, again, we have the imposition of colonizer views onto Native culture. It is not the natural order of the world that women are homemakers. It is a cultural belief, and it is a cultural belief that is not that is not shared by every culture on Earth. Generally speaking gender roles are more complex than man lead woman follow in pretty much every culture but to impose the exact wife tradition onto emily who isn't even sam's wife and certainly isn't the parent to every werewolf on the reservation is straight up colonial that is a colonial practice emily is literally just there to cook and take care of the boys without complaint and show that they can be dangerous yeah she's literally disfigured because of the uncontrollable male werewolf rage which is itself a racist construct that was so messed up i I, when i was reading that i was like they're no no they're not gonna wow that's when i think i texted missy i was like i don't know if it's just because it's mostly about werewolves but i feel like she's saying they're much more violent oh she is uh so this is a quote from Fear of Desire, Dracula, Purity, Culture, and the Sins of the Church by J.R. Forastros, who writes, in his now classic essay, Monster Theory, Seven Theses, Jerome, sorry, Jeffrey Jerome, I'm going to start that as Jerome Jerome, Jerome Jeffrey Jerome, sorry, Jeffrey Jerome, Jerome Cohen, I fucked that up every conceivable way. Uh, Jeffrey Jerome Cohen posits that monsters are cultural creations. They are, quote, born only at this metaphoric crossroads as an embodiment of a certain cultural moment, of a time, a feeling, and a place. The monster's body quite literally incorporates fear, desire, anxiety, and fantasy, a construct and a projection. The monster only exists to be read, unquote. It's telling, then, that the vampire appears not terribly dissimilar from the very religious leaders who claim to offer us protection from our desires, a charismatic older man with an air of authority. And here is the true danger of the vampire. By externalizing our fear of desire onto a fictional form we can exercise by way of a stake to the heart, we imagine that we have defeated the monster. Just as by externalizing our fear of desire into a female form, we can control the purity rings, one-piece bathing suits, and calls for modesty, we imagine we have conquered desire." And I want to return to this in a future episode to talk about what cultural movement moment gave birth to the Twilight Vampires, right? But for now, the idea that the vampire body includes fear and desire and so on definitely resonates, as does the vampire as a religious leader. In the case of Twilight, we have Edward and the rest of the Cullens, right? But especially Edward, functioning as the guardian of Bella's purity and as her moral guide for her life. He is the figure she turns to for protection and who she allows to guide her forward. He controls her sex life. He encourages slash coerces her into marriage. He's basically this big magnet that her entire life revolves around. Her life coach. Yeah. Bella still definitely desires, right? She desires a lot of things, especially Edward. Um, But Edward stands as guardian for all of the things that she desires. There is no path forward to her that is not guarded by Edward. There is nothing that she 
that she wants that is not in Edward's power to give. And that's what troubles me most about the gender roles in this book. Even when she's trying to give herself like that own choice of like, well, maybe I can be with Jacob. He's the one that's like, well, you can't be with a werewolf. I can't believe I let you stay with a werewolf. I can't believe Just, I left you and the werewolves are here. Yeah. Ed, that's what that's what bothers me most about this book is that Edward holds so much power over Bella and Bella has no self-esteem so much that she would rather die literally or figuratively than imagine her life without him. I think for me, like, I, you know what? I've read some weird shit. I could maybe get behind that. But what bothers me is that the book tries to make you think that he's some progressive dude mm-hmm. who's like no go to college no bella do what she you has want. she has the illusion of choice yes. but she doesn't because everything in this book is a construct yeah so like that's what bothers me about that like i hate i can't stand the illusion of feminism like mm-hmm. like i've given you a choice or i've allowed this so i'm a feminist right it's like <sighs> Almost like gaslighting. Again, I don't think these books need to be banned. I don't think that young children should not read them. It's not It's not that, right? That's not how I feel. What I feel is that these books contain a lot of ideologies that mirror the dominant ideologies in our culture and that we need to provide children and young other young readers, not necessarily children, teenagers, etc., with alternatives, and this book, this series provides a lot of illusions of choice, right? It provides, like, if Bella was a real person who did not want to go to college and who wants to be, you know, a traditional wife, by all means, choose that. If she was a developed character, and yeah. wanted to do that. If I felt like that made any fucking sense. But it's, instead, it, re- it does read to me as, like, I'm being sold an idea and I don't know yeah. it in the same way that the Chronicles of Narnia as a kid felt like it was selling me an idea and I wasn't aware of it until the end. Yeah. And that's what really bothers me about these books. I mean, th- I also just don't like them. Like, there's just nothing here for me. Nothing. Not a damn thing is here for me. Um, so, like, I don't enjoy the experience of reading them. But when, when talking about them critically, I'm less worried about Edward going into her bedroom. I'm less worried about him being, you know, hundred years old than I am about the fact that we are telling like these books are, are selling the ideology that the right and proper thing to do is to, you know, become a trad wife again, a different, wife. different from being a traditional wife. It is that that is the right and proper thing to do. I'm more worried about the idea of encouraging death and youth worship. I'm more worried about the idea that Bella has low self-esteem and doesn't overcome that until she literally dies like those are the things that concern me, and I think those are the things where, and like all of the racism, um, those are the things that yeah. that really stick with me, and that I think go largely unquestioned in our culture, and that is, I think, where the ideas are really troubling. I agree with that. I think that like it's easy to be like, like you said, like he's 100 years old, he sits in her room and watches her, but at least those things are telling me that like putting it out there like at least at least she's like yep this is what it is it's that it's that trying to make you believe you have a choice when you don't yeah that feels like the manipulation that feels like the abusive parts of it of of like it i know when i was young i didn't see this but as i'm older it's kind of feels like i'm not dumb but i didn't feel see it when i was younger so so I can't say that. I mean, right? these are these are prominent ideas in our culture. Yeah, it's much harder. Like the thing is, until you know about them, you cannot push back on them, and that is why we need to push back on them at all times, and not just when we're adults. Like so, like if you are a young reader reading Twilight, there's nothing wrong with that. I hope that you have other ideas to look to as well. 
I think it's totally fine to like Twilight. Yeah, of course. But I definitely, I definitely think it's important to examine what it's doing. Yeah, I like if I had like I have a niece for she's way too young to be reading <laughs> Twilight. Like she's like two years old. But like if my if my young niece was reading Twilight and I would be like, oh, what do you like about Twilight? Tell me about it. What's appealing to you about that? I would have a, I would want to have a discussion about it and be like, have you considered? This other thing, not because you shouldn't be reading Twilight, but because there's lots of interesting ideas out there that maybe you would like to engage with, too. This isn't the only way to look at the world. I think it's hard, though, because if you don't have somebody who thinks critically like that, exactly. you're not. I mean, you like I didn't have anybody besides you, like literally just you, who would think critically about that. Be like, well, what? Why? Why would we like this? Like, what else? Like exactly what happened in high school. Like this sucks. So let's go read the True Blood series, or let's go read Undead and Unwed. Like that's mm-hmm. exactly what happened. And like you don't always have that. So it's it's difficult to say because yes, it is easy to sit, for me to sit here and say like examine why you are reading it. But as a like as a teenager, you're not. Most kids are not going to get the examine why you are reading. This. Yeah, and that's why we should read widely. Yeah, we should have counterpoints. Right. Yes. It's not don't read Twilight. It's read widely. Yeah. You don't have to limit yourself to to books that are promoting whatever values you want the children in your life to have, you know, or to have for you to have. It's read widely. Like I mean, learn from other sources. Let those influence you. And the few people I, s- I have on like my Instagram stuff that I do know like Twilight definitely don't feel like they're following. I know for sure one of them is not falling into those gender roles. But of course. Love Twilight. Yeah. So it's not like you can't come out of that like being a Mormon. Yeah. The thing the thing that I want that I want to stress is that, again, well, I made, you know, now almost two hours of criticizing Twilight for the content that it contains. The problem itself is I mean, Twilight is, has problems, of course, but like Twilight did not invent these issues and it is not solely responsible for them. And I think that um, the sort of uh, simmering ideologies in them that I find repugnant um can be counteracted by reading widely, right? By reading different books. If I had only read the Chronicles of Narnia as a child and I had never read his dark materials, I think I would be a very different person because I was presented with a very different worldview. Same with Twilight. If Twilight was my only exposure to vampire literature, I would probably feel much better or much different rather about vampire literature than I do if I had not read Interview with the Vampire or Amelia Atwater Rhodes' books or um, the Sookie Stackhouse books or... Uh, the Undead and One series. Yeah. Like, I would have a very different feeling. Uh, and that's why I say, like, the solution is not ban Twilight. It's read widely. I don't know. I can't say for people who are younger than us, but I do know that when we were in high school, there was a lot of criticism of these books. So there was there was an opportunity to really think think critically about these. Unfortunately, a lot of it was Hermione versus Bella. Yeah. <laughs> there was a which, lot of that. You know. Okay. Um, and, and there was a lot of like just shaming the reader. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't, what does that serve? Exactly. What purpose does it serve to shame the reader when you could instead talk about, okay, what does this mean? Which is exactly why I wanted to do Twilight. Exactly that. I feel like there's a lot of blaming the people who read it while not examining exactly what was going on in these books. I've read almost every Sookie Stackhouse book. They're not very good. She he slides right in. like He in- slides right in her. Like they are not very good. But you know what? I'm I fucking, I fucking enjoy enjoy those books. Bill's abusive. Bill sucks ass. He traps her in a car and essentially rapes her. Yeah, I, like, let, you know, let she who is without books and cast the first stone. Like, (laughs) I like all kinds of garbage, you know? Like, 
Twilight is not necessarily worse than some of the bullshit that I have read and enjoyed. Okay. That's like, there's no reason for me to shame anybody who enjoys this. I like garbage. I know this. I am a raccoon. I love it. Roll me around in the garbage can. I love good garbage. Yeah. It's, it's the thing again. And I'm just going to say this over and over and over again. It's not about not reading Twilight. It's about reading widely. It's about having a variety of ideas to be exposed to. You I know? can't say this. I so get why Fifty Shades of Grey was written. Oh, yeah. I so Once get it. Once you read this, you're like, oh, okay. I so get it. Here's everything that you wanted but didn't get. Yeah. Whether or not it should have been created into more than it is is boy, a different story. Boy, howdy. At least I could finish Twilight. <laughs> See, and I, I, I feel I haven't tried to read the book, but I feel the opposite with oh. the movies. The movies, I finished all those movies and didn't feel like this was absolutely completely bad, repugnant. But like, at least the first Twilight movie, I despised. Oh, I like the first. Oh, well, okay, I, I don't like it, I but it was fun. It. I didn't even think it was fun. I did not. Like I'm sorry it. for you. Yeah, Vampire I, baseball. Too. I mean, okay, that's fun. <laughs> But that is not the whole... It's so weird. Like, the hold on tight, spider monkey. Why? <laughs> Why say that? I just... The lack of, like, a, a real feeling of a cohesive beginning, middle to end. At least the book had that. <laughs> not very Did well. it? It... I mean... It had... It felt more like a beginning, middle, and end. I could not disagree more. Really? I could not disagree I, more. I would... The that's book... how I felt. The book is, like, not even three quarters. It's, like, four-fifths staring into one another's eyes and then the plot is crammed into the last 90 pages i i think we'll just have to agree to disagree (laughs) i mean i don't disagree with what you said i just think that as comparing the two i felt like the book had a beginning middle and end as opposed to the movie i felt like just was there i think we read different books i don't even know i don't even know where where you found a plot in there i'm amazed tell me tell me where the plot was at least there was the. Uh, anyways, doesn't matter. I will just agree to disagree on that one because I. That's how I felt after watching that movie. Um, anyway, that's it for this episode. Yeah, you can find us online at fakegirlscast.com. Has all of our past episodes, including our Twilight episode. If you want to listen to that, also the Vampire Diaries episode, which I feel like is a good companion. Yeah. Um, you can also find a link to our Patreon, where for a small donation per month, you can get an ac- you can get access to our forthcoming. No research, Austin Powers episode. It's gonna be good. Just for a dollar a month, we're gonna see how well I stick to no research. What's probably gonna happen is that I'm gonna like read some stuff and then just not dig deeper and think. Yeah. What's gonna happen is Missy's gonna end up doing a bunch of research and think deeper on it. Yeah, and then I'm just not gonna put together a detailed outline. I'm just gonna be like, I read an essay that said, yeah, um, which is just my default state of being. Uh, next up, we're gonna be doing Dairy Girls. Not dairy, like AI. Not AI. D-E-R-R-Y. And then we are going to be doing the Vampire Diaries seasons five through eight. We'll be done. I'm in season seven now, which I will say is better, I think. As soon as I'm done. Than the rest of what we're watching. Well, I guess Dairy Girls. I Uh, say Gilmore Girls, but I'm Dairy Girls. The Vampire Diaries season seven has mean lesbian vampires. So it is automatically better than any preceding season. And after that, we're going to be doing Hellblazer. Um, for this episode, I will give you our reading list. We're going to split it in two because I can't get, listen, I've done so much teen vampire shit and I'm so over teen vampire shit. It is time to indulge me. So we're doing two Hellblazer episodes. 
One is going to be on um, some of the comics. So we're going to, in terms of the trades, we're going to be doing Original Sins. And then we are going to be doing Dangerous Habits. And then we are going to be doing um, the new run by uh, Simon Spurrier, Matthias Bergara, um, Aaron Campbell, and Aditya Bidikar, um, which is, I can't remember what, what it's, oh, John Constantine Hellblazer. We're going to be doing that as well because it kicks ass. Um, and then in a second episode, we are going to be doing Constantine the movie, which, yes. how have we not done it yet? Like, this was like a foundational text for the people that we became. Um, we're going to be doing Constantine the movie and Constantine the show. It's going to be so good. I'm really excited to talk about those two things in like in connected to each other. Um, I watched some of the Constantine show and I did not like it. Uh, I'm interested to revisit it. I still think Matt Ryan is the perfect Constantine. Um, the casting, impeccable. The show itself, um, But we'll see how I feel on rewatching. Maybe I'll like it more. Who knows? Um, so I'm looking forward to that. After that, we're going to be doing Fruits Basket. Again, yeah. we're going to split that in two. So we're going to do the the manga. And then we are going to do both of the shows I together. The mangas. Um, oh, no, I found them online. So that's it. All right. Catch on the flip side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.